morning. We've got two readings this morning. The first one's from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. The second reading is Revelation 5, 6 to 14. Revelation 5, starting from verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircling, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You had made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Thank you, Nick. Uh, youth Church, that is your cue to, um, to head out. For the rest of us, keep your Bibles open. Um, welcome if you're new or visiting, by the way. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so privileged to be, actually. Isn't it great to hear uh, some of the initiatives that are happening here where we really, really, want, we really want to be expressing our unity as a family of God? We're not just um, coming along. This is not a hobby club. This is something that is deeply invested in here um, because of what God has done for us in Christ that we get to acknowledge and treat each other as brothers and sisters. That's spectacular. What a privilege. Um, <clears throat> now, have you ever heard the, the expression of a, a drop in the ocean? Or more crudely put, as a spit in the bucket, that sort of idea. You know, I probably prefer the spit in the bucket one, personally. It's, it's when something is so inconsequential or insignificant to such an extreme degree, you might say it's a poofteenth. <laughs> That's an imperial measurement, not often used. Uh, maybe I just made it up. I'm not sure. What I mean is we're doing a sermon today, and we're looking at this idea of God. And the truth is, no matter what I say, no matter how long I talk for, it will be a drop in the ocean, it'll be a spit in the bucket, it will be a poofteenth of what could be said about God. I know. 
no matter what I do, I'm going to not do him justice. But that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile doing. It doesn't mean that there's not plenty of good stuff that we can and we must say about God. And so I want to start off by actually praying that God would help us to do this well. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We pray now that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give us wisdom to understand, that we might leave here knowing you as you are, not as we've assumed you to be, not as we choose you to be, but who you've revealed yourself to be. And so, Father, we ask that you would humble us, that you would help us to drop whatever is false and to cling to whatever is true, that it might profoundly shape not just our lives now, but it might change our death, it might secure our eternity in Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, like a lot of people over Christmas, I caught up with some family I hadn't seen for a while. I was at one particular party on Christmas Eve where I saw a cousin, a distant cousin, who I hadn't seen for many years. <coughs> Excuse me. And it was now absolutely covered in ink. Uh, tattoos galore, little stickers and pictures of everything, just crying out for attention. And so after you know, the obligatory exchange of uh, pleasantries, I obliged. And I started reading. I was having a look and seeing, and what do we got here? And the, the first one I remarked on was the one I saw first. It was sort of prominently placed in the middle of her forearm. It said, God is a woman. I said, well, that's a red rag to a bull. Uh, we're going to need to talk about that one. <laughs> to which she replied, who said he isn't? Now, interesting, naturally went for a masculine pronoun there, but I was only skipped aside from that and I said, well, he did. <laughs> there was an awkward pause, a more awkward stare, and then she proceeded to dodge me for the rest of the evening. Now, <laughs> we're looking at our statements of beliefs in this sermon series, and today we're talking about what we believe about God. I don't raise that little interaction because of uh, you know, an argument about masculinity, femininity, superiority, inferiority, nothing of that. But that little interaction with my distant cousin does reveal an important principle, an important reality that we need to address if we're going to do the topic of God any justice. That is that most people, in fact, I looked the stats up, McCrindle research suggests that still 55% of Australians believe in God. That sounds good. But the problem is I'm convinced that most people believe in God as a concept. They have a notion of this idea of a supreme being. They treat God, though, as completely changeable, malleable, and open to interpretation. If I could use an expression, they sort of treat God like a colouring in page. We all get the same sort of basic outline, the basic shape of a supreme being in our conscious, conscience, but in terms, excuse me, in terms of the colour scheme or the extra details, you can put in what you want. It's up to the individual. You have a faith, I have a faith. Your faith in God leads you to believe and say and do certain things, and my God, or my belief in faith in God is a little different, and so it leads me to do other things. I've used a different palette, and therefore I have different ideas. Now, that sounds wonderful. Sounds really reasonable. Sounds wonderfully tolerant. In fact, that's how it's often marketed. This is how we can be all-inclusive. But the problem is it's not true. See, what you've described there, if this, we've got this concept of an empty uh, a concept of God that we fill in, that's the very definition of idolatry. A designer God, made according to an individual's preference, based on an individual's subjective feelings or best guess, that's idolatry. 
And like I've said in the past, it's not just a substandard idea, it's an idea that is critically and dangerously wrong. Because God isn't a concept, he's not just a notion, he's not just an idea you can tailor to your liking, he's not an outline that you get to fill in or customise, instead God, as supreme being, as creator of the heavens and the earth, he's revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us generally through creation and specifically through the history of his chosen people, the nation of Israel, leading up to his full and final revelation through his son, Jesus, through his word, the Bible, confirmed by his spirit, which contains everything we need to know him truly and properly and make us wise for salvation. Now, everything I've just said there, that's contained in the first sermon in this series. That anything we say about God must conform to his own self-revelation in his word, the Bible. So if that's the sticky point for you, go back, get online on the podcast and listen to the first sermon, because I'm taking that as assumed and read at this point. That's what we're doing. We're looking at who God is and who he's revealed himself to be through the history of his chosen people, through Israel, through his son, by his spirit, in his word. Now, obviously, there's stacks we could say about God. I'm going to concentrate instead on a couple of the key aspects of our statements of belief printed in your outline. If you've got one, by all means, if you haven't got one, go grab one. But it's got there uh, an outline of not just God imagined, but God revealed. And I'm going to speak briefly uh, on what God has revealed about himself under these headings. God is three in one, or we say triune. God is eternal. God is relational. God is sovereign and God is preeminent. And by that I mean supreme, matchless, incomparable. I'll fill that out more as we get there. In fact, it's going to be the big application of a sermon like this. It's going to be the so what sort of thing. All these things considered, how does that mean you should respond to God? Well, you should see that He is preeminent. We'll get there. But let's start at the beginning. Triune. God is triune. Triune? Now, that's a church word if ever I've heard one. God is triune. That sounds really good. What does that mean? I've got no idea. Um, Most people have heard of this idea of the triune nature of God or the Trinity, but really haven't come to grips with what it actually means, what it is, or why it matters. The Trinity or the triune nature of God is actually very simple to define, but impossible to fully comprehend. The Trinity simply means three in one. Tri-unity. That's easy. All right, case closed. No. In practice, this is how God has revealed himself, a single entity, one God, one being, one divine essence, but shared between three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. Now, if you're starting to get that you know, twitch going in your eye at the minute, that, you know, struggling to understand even that much, welcome to the club. That's a reasonable fitting response. It's why the next, well, the fourth word in that first statement is so key. Do you see what it says there? It says that God is unique. God's triunity, his three in oneness, is completely unique to him. That means it's without comparison. It means there's no possible analogy that we could use that could be used to accurately describe him. And in fact, any attempt to do so ends up sort of falling into some other ancient heresy. You know, you go, oh, the egg, yolk, shell, white. No, heresy. <laughs> oh, he's a, a three-legged stool or he's water and ice and vapor. No, they're all her- it's all heretical. It doesn't come close. It's impossible for us as humans, as created, limited, natural, finite beings, it's impossible for us to fully comprehend or understand God who is creator, unlimited, supernatural, infinite. 
So the fact that you can't fit the full appreciation of the infinite nature of God who is three in one, the fact you can't fit that in the three pounds of porridge in between your ears ought not be a surprise or a problem to you. In fact, it makes complete and logical sense because in order for you to know something or someone, in order for you to know someone fully, you need to be greater than the thing you're explaining. Do you understand that? I stole this off you, Mike. I didn't reference in the first one. It's to you, man. Think about this for a moment. We're humans. Collectively, over thousands of years, we still can't, and in fact, we never will be able to understand the full complexity of what it is to be human. There's still so much we haven't worked out about even ourselves because we're all fixed to the same point of reference. We're all human. No one can rise above that to be able to look down on that, to be able to explain it in its entirety. Is that true? That's true. And if it's true of a, of a human nature, what hope have we got of fully comprehending God as Trinity as three in one? The obvious answer is we, we, we haven't got a hope of explaining that in its entirety. Now, because of this, because of this complexity, many people shy away from acknowledging the triune nature of God. It's too difficult. It's too confusing, they say. Can't we just bypass this for easier ideas? I can understand the sentiment, but why must we maintain this distinctive of God? Well, it's a simple, obvious answer, because it's how he's revealed himself to be. It's not a matter of preference or convenience. It's a matter of fact. We hold this... Because as we read in our Deuteronomy reading there, God has made this plain. Have a look at it again at Deuteronomy 6.4. This little prayer, if you like, is called the Shema. It's known as the Shema in it's the, the uh, Hebrew verb to hear, or actually it's a command. Listen, hear. Jews, Orthodox Jews still pray this morning and evening every day. And what do the Jews remind themselves of twice daily? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right, pretty simple. Emphasis clearly on the singularity of God. We call this monotheism. Mono, one, theos, God, one God. That's the big end of this. And this Shema prayer commands Israel to hear and acknowledge that God, specifically Yahweh, is one. Now, it's important. This is a little textual thing you need to see. Every time you read capital L-O-R-D in your English translation of the Bible, that's a translation for the personal name of God that he gave to Moses in Exodus 3. The best we can sort of come up with is it's Yahweh. That's what's being translated when you read capital L-O-R-D in your Bible. So here, what it's actually literally saying then is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. Okay, that's interesting. But there's another little textual quirk you need to notice. Because the word translated God, Elohim, is actually the plural for God in Hebrew. That's whack. What's going on here? You know, so what we're actually reading here is, Hero Israel, Yahweh our gods, Yahweh is one. What? <laughs> It's interesting, don't you think? Why is it that Hebrew does this continually? They've got a singular for God. It's used in the, in the Hebrew Bible. But when they speak of their God, Yahweh, they use it in a plural form, Elohim. Singular God. He's clearly one. 
This is not a knockdown argument for the Trinity, not by any stretch, but it helps make sense of other significant clues we get in the Old Testament and the outright claims we get in the New Testament that God is, in fact, triune, three in one. Have a look at a couple with me. Let me lay a few down for you. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim, plural of God, created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the spirit of Elohim, of God, in plural, was hovering over the waters. Verse 26, God, Elohim, said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. Or what about 1 John? Go to the New Testament for a second. 1 John, as he opens up his gospel, he's absolutely channeling Genesis when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Or Colossians 1.15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now here's my question to you. Who created the universe? Was it God the Father? Was it God the Spirit? Was it Jesus? And the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, the one God in singular plurality, plurality created everything. The one God in singular plurality, the Trinity, God, created everything. And because of this, we can say with confidence, not arrogance, mind you, but with confidence, we can say things about other uh, religions then. For example, because this is true, because this is how God has revealed himself, we can say that Islam is wrong. We can say that Judaism is wrong. We can say that Mormonism is wrong. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they're wrong. In fact, any pantheistic religion that is a concept of many gods, it is wrong. We can say any panentheistic religion, that is where God is in all, like a Buddhist sort of idea, it's wrong. And I genuinely say, I don't say this lightly, and I don't mean to say this arrogantly, and I don't say this based on what I've come to deserve, and this is what I've... No, this is because this is what God has said. All those attempts to understand and explain God as either three gods or one mighty God and one lesser God or heaps and heaps and heaps of gods, they, they refute, deny and contradict God's own self-revelation as one God in three persons. It's wrong. You haven't got to like it. You haven't got to be able to explain or draw it. You can't, but you've got to believe it. It's one of the non-negotiables. It's one of the non-negotiable aspects of who God is as revealed by God himself. To deny it, to reject it, to ignore it is neither necessary, wise or safe. So have you come to terms with it? Have you come to terms with this aspect of who God is inexplicably three in one in such a way that it really does hurt your mind to think of and blow your brain up? Praise God, it's awesome. Pray that he would help you to understand even in your incomplete understanding but what's the next non-negotiable aspect of God's self-revelation to us picked up in our statement well God is the one unique and eternal eternal God I want to pick up on that word there God's eternality is paramount to understanding who he is what I mean by that is he is the uncreated creator. He is the uncaused cause of all things. He is without beginning and end. That's what we mean when we say God is eternal. Now, I'm going to say less about this because you already know this is true. Even people who militantly deny this know it's true. I'll tell you why they do, because God has made it plain to everyone. 
look, a couple of Bible verses to make this case. Solomon made this observation in Ecclesiastes uh, 3, verses 10 and 11. When he's reflecting about life under the sun, he's trying to get a, a bit of a handle of what's good about uh, to pursue in life. If there's no God, what's good under the sun? And, and he can't do it. He ends up saying, this is all vaporous. This is all meaningless. This is a poofdeenth of what it should be. Right, there, it again, there it is again. Um, it's just a nothingness. It's a, it's a chasing after the wind. And he, and he keeps having to go back to the, where he gets meaning and purpose. And as he considers time even... As, as Solomon is speaking, as God's Spirit carries him along, Allah 2 Peter 1, 22, we talked about that last week, Solomon comes out with this, Ecclesiastes 3.10. I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity into the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And then verse 14, a little bit later, Solomon says, he's done this so that men will revere him, literally fear him. So I'm not going to argue the case. I don't have to. You have a concept of eternity. It's God-given. It's inescapable. You know this because you have this innate desire to experience life in its flourishing, in its most flourishing sense. Everybody wants life to flourish and continue. That's why you have a natural survival instinct. In fact, tragically, I'd also say, and again, I don't say this lightly, tragically, it's actually also why people commit suicide. It's because when life isn't flourishing and people reach the end of their coping mechanisms, they don't get rid of the eternal yearning. They act to escape that which it isn't. And it's tragic. It's tragic because they don't know, often, often they don't know where they're escaping to, but it's this longing for eternity that is driving the willingness or the desire to escape. It's innate, it's God-given, and it's inescapable. You've got a concept of eternity, even though you can't explain it. And God's eternality also is the right logical deduction from creation itself. In fact, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. Let me read it to you again from Romans 1.18. It says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. What's he made plain? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Do you hear that? What can be known about God? Just by looking at his eternal power, his divine nature... It is, all pla it is plain to all, people of all places, of all times, of all countries and nations, because God has made it plain through creation. So much so that the back end of verse 20, all people, all men, it says all men, all people are without excuse. God's eternality is therefore something I feel under no obligation to convince you of because you already know it. And if you say you don't, you've got no excuse for not knowing in fact, this is also part of what we see when we come to understand from God's personal name, the one he gave to Moses, the one I mentioned before in Exodus 3 when Moses says to God, what, you want me to go get people out of Egypt? Who would I tell Pharaoh? Sent, what do I tell him? Who sent me? And God says, tell him, Yahweh sent you. That word literally translates to I am sent you. I am who I am, or I will, I, I will be who I will be. It's the, the Hebrew verb to be. The I am sent you. Now, that is amazing. Just stop and think about that. That is two words, three letters, 
hopefully you've got a bit of time if you're in a Bible study group to roll that around a little bit in, in discussion. But it is, it is crazy that two words, three letters, so simple and yet such a powerful description revealing things indescribable about God. He is completely self-determinant unaffected by anything outside of himself beyond comparison or description pure reality God is he just is it means there's nothing deficient in him it means there's no space for growth or development no capacity or necessity for change God is wowzers I mean, just think on that for a little bit. How does that affect the way you think about, you, you, you uh, respond to God, the God who just is? In fact, it's this aspect that leads us to another important non-negotiable about God's own self-revelation. The fact that he is pure reality, complete, perfect, singular in his plurality. I'm having trouble with that word, aren't I? And he's many-faceted. No, that's not even. That's not better. Singular, singular in his plurality. It also means that he's relational. It's the third point on your outline. God is relational. Now, this is important for several reasons. Firstly, it means that God did not create humans for company. He didn't create humanity because he was lonely. In fact, he is. He already was. And because he's three in one, he had no need, no obligation, no deficiency to correct. Correct Creation and humanity adds nothing to God himself. Acts 17, 24, or 25, if you want a little uh, verse to chase down on that one. And that can sound really odd at first. It can actually sound a little bit discouraging, but it's true and it's a wonderful truth. Because it means this, God is inherently relational in and of himself, able to know and be known. And though he didn't need humanity, he created us anyways. Not for his sake, but for our sake. Not for his good, but for our good. So that he might share in his awesome magnificence with us. See, that's why creation happened, friends. This is where you've got to get to. That's why you exist. It's out of the overflow of God's goodness that he freely decided to create humanity to share in his glory. And not only that, we know that he's not just relational, but he is relationally good. Because although he had no obligation to treat us well, in, he actually gave of himself in the most extraordinary fashion to demonstrate his love, his mercy, his generosity towards the humanity who actually spurned him, turned him aside. He, shows that, he showed that in the laying down of his life in the crucifixion of Jesus. But that's another sermon. You've got to wait for that one. That's a couple of weeks away. The point that I really just want you to see here and grasp and take hold of is that God is relational. He's not an impersonal force. I've been watching a little bit of Star Wars lately. Shout out to PF2, put me onto it. I'm trying to get into it. Never liked it before. But God's not the force, rightio. God is not the force. And he's, and he's not the God who made the world and wound it up like a clock and then stepped back to see what would happen, either unable or unwilling to intervene. No, that's not who God is. God is relational, both in and of himself and very generously in his invitation of you, his creature, to be in relationship with him. Romans 5, 8 reminds us of this when it says, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Very short, very powerful, very punchy little piece of information there. Do you hear the relational lengths 
that God has gone to as an expression of his goodness and his generosity and his love for people like us. He didn't stay distant. He entered into the muck of a broken, sinful world and not because he had to, but because he chose to. So that you might find the forgiveness and the peace and the internal flourishing, the eternal flourishing of life that can be only found in him. That is at the heart of the gospel message. The question is, do you have that relationship, that peace and forgiveness? Do you have that with God through Christ? Do you know him as he has revealed himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, eternal, graciously self-giving and relational? Do you know that to be true? Don't leave that question up in the air, friends. Don't leave that as a question as yet unanswered. Don't be comfortable with not being sure about this. Keep wrestling this out. Keep working this out. Keep struggling to understand. And a spoiler alert, it's all about trusting Jesus. (laughs) But don't leave without actually being comfortable and knowing that you can be at peace with God through Christ. Don't leave today doing that. And if you do know him now, if you understand a relationship through God, uh, with God through trust in Jesus, then the question is, how do you express that relationship daily? Does knowing God and being known by him make a difference to the way you live, to the way you speak, to the way you act, to the way you spend, to the way you decide, to the way you work? To the w- we could go on and on. If it doesn't, then you should be taking some stock too. You should be concerned about that. You shouldn't be just blasé about it. In fact, you should be turning to him in for help acknowledging where it is a misstep in my response. I need help from him who is able to help. In fact, it's, it's, this is leads us nicely to our fourth point. The fact that when I recognize that my response to God is less than it ought be, what do I do with that? Another spoiler alert, the answer is not within you. The answer is from without. <laughs> it's in God who is sovereign. The sovereignty of God. Now, this really is another bit of a brain bender. It's another aspect of God that is relatively easy to define, but very difficult to understand in how it works out in all of life. God is sovereign. What does that mean? I like Jim Packer's definition of God's sovereignty. He's got a little book called Concise Theology. Um, It just packs a punch. It's a couple of pages on all these different doctrines that really are, I think, spectacularly good. Add it to your library. Um, Excellent stuff. But J.I. Packer uh, uh, speaks about God's sovereignty in terms of his rule or his dominion, and he puts it like this. God's dominion is total. He wills as he chooses, and he carries out all that he wills, and none can stay his hand or thwart his plans. I like it. It makes sense. It's clear. It's punchy. It's the same idea that we try to capture in our statements of belief when we affirm God's sovereignty or rule over all things. All things. We only mention a couple in our statements of belief. We only mention specifically creation or revelation, redemption, judgment, and the bringing about of his kingdom. But we really do mean all things. And again, it's not hard to show this uh, biblically. The Psalms, man, read a little bit of the Psalms, constantly talking about Yahweh's rule and reign over all things forever. You want a couple of chase down, Psalm 47, Psalm 93, 96, 99, Psalm 146. Come and see me if you want them later. Or Proverbs that speak of God's will as the ultimate. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is Yahweh's purpose that prevails. God is sovereign over all things, even down to the minutest of minuscule, insignificant things. Even the outcome of the dice is not beneath or beyond God's sovereign determination. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from Yahweh. That's how sovereign he is. 
That's how in control he is. Even when you roll the dice, it's not a random chance event. It's a determined decision from Yahweh. Now, the idea, or rather the truth of God's sovereignty, it causes some issue for some people at first glance. There's a couple, there's, there's lots of them, but let me just deal with a few. For example, if God is indeed sovereign over all things, then what do we do? What do we make of natural disasters? What do we make of tragedies and diseases? What do we do with pandemics? That causes a little bit of a concern for lots of folk. In fact, immediately people will balk at the idea that God is somehow in control of these things and yet they're still present. And so they try to get God off the hook, so to speak, by softening the idea of God's sovereignty. In fact, it's not unpopular to hear people say things like, oh, this is just part of the natural process that God has created. It's the wind the clock up, step back kind of idea that I talked about before. The problem is the Bible knows nothing of that. (laughs) That soft stance on God's sovereignty, no, God's not having a bar of it. God needs no one to get him off any supposed hook. In fact, he, st- he speaks to this directly uh, in, let's look at Isaiah 45. We read this last year. Yeah, we saw this last year. God is speaking to Cyrus, a pagan king, and he says this in Isaiah 45, 5. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Now, just think about that for a second. Do you hear how unflinching, unapologetic, and crystal clear God is saying that he is in control of everything, of light and dark, he alone? He brings prosperity and creates disaster. He alone. And you notice the reason that he does these things? Did you see what it is? He creates both, and the reason is the same. Did you notice verse 6? So that people might know there is none besides me. Now, do you know what that means personally? Do you know how that plays out for you personally? Do you know where that actually touches your life? It means that every occasion in your life, whether in trial or triumph, whether you're enjoying a family picnic, whether you're celebrating a job promotion, whether you're suffering through a global pandemic, anything and everything you're experiencing, your response will be the same. This is from the hand of God. This is from the hand of God that I might know him better, that I might be humbled by him, that I might acknowledge that the world is marred by sin. It is not as he planned, that I would repent and acknowledge that I have nothing to depend on, nothing besides him. And when I realize this and I understand his promise and his invitation to me in Jesus, the promise to participate in his eternal perfect kingdom, I can praise him as he deserves even here because he alone is sovereign and good. I can trust and rely on him in any and every situation. That's the response. That's the only right response, whether in trial or triumph, that God is in control. And as an aside, if you're still not convinced about God's goodness in relation to disasters or general bad stuff in the world, look, that's okay. Hear me right here. This is not simple stuff to compute. It's deeply emotional. It's often very personal, and it can feel pretty destabilizing at first glance. I appreciate that. But let me ask, if you simply just abandon the idea of God's sovereignty and God's control over all things, despite the mountain of biblical evidence, if you just try to abandon that or ignore it, what are you left with? What have you gained? Actually, how do you explain either the triumphs or the trials in life? 
how do you account for either the good or the bad stuff? See, denying God's sovereign control hasn't gained you anything. Instead, you're actually left with a much bigger gap of explanation to do. You haven't got a reason for either. And now you've got it coupled with the horror of a purposelessness in life at the very mercy of utter random chance, just pitiless indifference. Man, that is the recipe for a much bigger existential crisis, in my opinion. But as I've said, God's self-revelation lets you know unequivocally that he alone is in complete control and you can trust him no matter what. No matter what. Now, just think about that is a really bold statement. I do not say that lightly. I do not know the experiences of your life. I don't know what you've done or what's been done to you. I don't know. I can't pretend to. And yet I can say biblically confidently that none of it is outside of God's control. None of it is outside of his sovereign in, uh, superintention or his care. And none of it is that you would actually turn away from him, but rather that you would turn towards him. And that is either the most disgusting, <laughs> heartless lie or the most unimaginable good truth. It brings us to another aspect, actually, of God's sovereignty that troubles people. It's how God's sovereignty meshes with the, uh, the, the idea of human responsibility or freedom of choice. Actually, often as it relates to human salvation, the basic question will come up time and time again. Does God choose us for salvation or do we choose God for salvation? Now, we could genuinely spend hours on this topic alone. It will come up at least 39 times in your Bible studies this year, and it should. And so I'm going to make some quick comments, all right? This is something we come back to all the time, and it's right and reasonable to do so. Does God choose us for salvation, or do we choose Him for salvation? And the basic answer to that question is yes. <laughs> yes, in that order. In that order. God chooses us, and we choose Him. Now, here, let, me just, let me just unpack that a little bit. Some very clear scripture, if you want to write some down, that unmistakably make this clear. I'll mention them in passing. Ezekiel 37, John 3, John 6, back end of Romans 8 into Romans 9, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2. I mean, we could just keep going on and on. I could go with lots of these places. But the emphasis of the necessity of God's first move towards people by His Spirit is paramount. God's first move to his people by his spirit, followed by the now, only now possible, willing choice of individuals to choose God. If I could nominate just one verse to, for you to meditate on to see this, John six thirty seven, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. God chooses. And whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. You see, election and invitation are running parallel. You're invited and you have a responsibility to respond. God is sovereign even over salvation and humans are completely accountable for the decision. Both are biblically true. You're invited to realize God chose you first. And this leads nicely into our final point for this morning. All these things combined, all these things build up to make the one final important point about God that he is preeminent over all. He is preeminent over all. That is, he is the greatest, foremost, arch, capital, central, primary, paramount, predominant, principal, highest good you could ever conceive of. It's essentially what we read, we heard read in our Revelation reading today from Revelation 5. In fact, let me just skip back just a tiny little bit. Go back to Revelation 4, 11. 
Since the creation of the world, there has been a song being sung in heaven proclaiming, proclaiming God's preeminence. It says this, 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God has been worshipped by all the, all the beings in the heavenly realms from creation for his creation. And then in Revelation 5, for the first time since creation began, there's a new track on the jukebox. There's a new song being sung. As the lamb who was slain, unambiguously a reference to Jesus, ascends to the same singular throne of God to likewise receive preeminent praise. Now not for creation alone, but for the redemption of people at the cost of his own blood. Have a look at it there, verse 9. It's a people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. So now the universe is singing a new song of praise to God. It's to Jesus in verse 12, and it says this. It says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and power. And there's a reason they keep adding on the ends and the ends and the ends because it keeps building and building and building. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped that's what it means for god to be preeminent that's what it means for jesus to be preeminent he is the greatest good the highest possible pursuit worthy of all your praise worship and adoration bar none the question then that we need to ask is are you singing from that song sheet is that the tune of your heart is that the rhythm of your innermost thoughts and desires the praise and honor of god above all else it should be it must be it cannot not be in fact let me say it this way if you gear or orient your life towards anyone or anything else as more important or significant than god no matter how good or noble those things might seem be it friends be it family be it eradication of well hunger free health care and zero emissions whether it be inherited wealth family long-lasting legacy whatever you could possibly name if your life is geared towards anything other than god as a first priority you're not making a harmless mistake you're making a critical grievous error you're doing both yourself and more importantly god a massive disservice and you're not dealing with the god the living god of the bible you're not worshiping the living god of the bible and you're not rejecting the living god of the bible you've come up with something else friends don't make that mistake if it's been your mistake in the past, then now is the time to spend and acknowledge that before God and ask him not just to forgive, but to transform you so that you might know how to respond to him well, to the God who is holy, unique, eternal, relational, sovereign, and preeminent. And the only way you can do that is by coming to Jesus. Here's a nice little one, a little phrase, a little throwaway to finish off with. Know Jesus k-n-o-w no lasting contentment no jesus no lasting contentment let's pray and ask that god would actually give us that heavenly father we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and we pray that you would help us to come into line with who you have uh, revealed yourself to be and that by knowing jesus we might be not just know you but be known by you that we might know life in the full in the fullest sense, in the forever sense.
And Father, we ask that where we have uh, ignored or rejected or denied or perverted anything else, Father, forgive us and transform us so that we might respond to you rightly. We need your help in it, Father. We ask you to do it for our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.